morning, everyone. My name is Kadeem Green. I'm the youth pastor here at Grace Marietta. And as you can tell already, today is Youth Takeover Sunday. And I, for one, could not be more proud and more honored uh, to, to be with our young people and to see the hard work that they've put together uh, to make this all uh, a reality. I encourage you after this service to please join us in, uh, on, a, on a live Zoom call uh, to encourage and to give a kind word to our young people and to just tell them how much we appreciate the work uh, that we've put in today. Uh, if you're joining us for the first time, I want to say welcome, and we're so happy that you're here with us. And today we're going to be talking about youth in exile. <laughs> it's uh, fitting for the day. And we're going to be reading from Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, verses 4 to 9 to start off. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 9 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. As I was preparing for this, I remember having to write a paper uh, in college on, uh, on Hitler. So I had to read up uh, a number of different things about probably one of the most worst human beings to ever exist, right? And I remember uh, reading in Mein Kampf that uh, Hitler had this quote. I looked it up. It says, whoever has the youth has the future. So in the 1920s before the war, uh, the Nazis had already begun uh, to target uh, German young people for the purposes of spreading their ideology. So by the end of 1933, uh, the Nazi youth group uh, went 50,000 members and grew to a staggering figure of 2 million. Uh, three years later, that number increased to 5.4 million. And not long after, this became a mandatory thing for every child over the age of six to join a Nazi youth group. And if they didn't participate, parents were threatened that their children would be taken from them or they'd be fined or imprisoned. So from the earliest ages, these young boys and girls were taught to love Hitler, to love the state. They were taught racism, anti-Semitism. Although it was mandatory, a lot of the youth didn't have to, um, they didn't really have to be forced into it. Why? Because, hey, if a bunch of my friends are doing something and a part of something, I want to do it too. So this gave them a sense of identity, a sense of belonging. Uh, and clearly they were being lied to and, 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 and it was not honest or anything like that. And they were essentially, well, I mean, they were being brainwashed um, into thinking, into doing this. But, but, why, but why did he go so far into, into, into doing this? Why target the youth? Historian Michael Cater comments, he had to have recruits, people who would take over as grown-ups and continue the ideology of the Third Reich. Hitler said the state must declare the child to be the most precious treasure of the people. And he knew that if he could disguise what he was doing to make it somehow appear like this is on behalf and the benefit of the children, that he'd already won half the battle. Uh, Christian author and apologist Ravi Zacharias tells the story of when he went to visit, um, visit Auschwitz, uh, the concentration camp, that there is a, a plaque that hangs on the wall, and it's a quote from Hitler, and it says, I freed Germany from the stupid and degrading fallacies of conscience and morality. We will train young people whom, uh, before whom the world will tremble. Uh, we want young people capable of violence, imperious, relentless, and cruel. Why spend so much time talking about this? Well, because Hitler wasn't the first person to discover this truth, and he wasn't the last to act on it either. So again, remember the quote, whoever has the youth has the future. 
he understood something that marketers and advertising agencies, kings, rulers, nations of the past and the present understand that the necessity to teach, train, develop, equip young men and women uh, is, is necessary in order for future generations to flourish. And this is a fact that we see displayed all throughout scripture. And this morning, this is something uh, we want to delve into a little bit more. And so we're going to look at four, four Hebrew boys, four teenagers. Uh, we see in Daniel chapter 1 that uh, King Nebuchadnezzar arrives in Jerusalem and he sieges it. He takes it over. And the Babylonians, uh, they weren't the ones to mess around with. This is just what they did. They just went around. They conquered nations. They were powerful. Assyrians, Egyptians, it didn't matter. Conquer and grow. Conquer and grow. Expand the empire. This was their thing. So Nebuchadnezzar finds his way to Jerusalem and takes Daniel, young Daniel, and uh, three of his buddies, and, a, and other young people as well, and just other people, takes them out of their land of Jerusalem and brings them over to Babylon. Why? Because he wants to assimilate them. He wants to assimilate them to be trained in Babylonian customs, culture, tradition, language, literature, uh, and, and everything Babylonian. That sounds very familiar to the ploy that Hitler uh, would, would act um, in the 1930s. So we read in, in verse 3, Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. So the idea here is dissimilate to assimilate. So we need to, uh, first of all, tear them down, take everything out in order to dump in what we want to put in them. So we see he's, 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 remember, these young men, these, 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 these are teenagers. So we're going to see shortly that his plan to select the best, the brightest, the smartest, all of the other things, it's going to backfire on him. This, 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 this idea to brainwash him, it's going to backfire. So he has to deconstruct them in order to fill them with the customs and the cultures of the Babylonians. And Verse 7 tells us that he goes as far as to even change their names, right? So this is an attempt to completely destroy their identities. Our identity, our, our, our names is our identity. So if we don't know who we are, if we don't know where we've come from, uh, most importantly, if we don't know who God is, we can easily be swayed and taken uh, back and forth by anything. The fact that these boys were chosen among the group suggests that uh, they, they, their parents faithfully, seriously, and obediently taught Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6. And we'll see uh, evidence of that later on. So your name's important. You respond to the name you've been given. Your identity is associated with your name. Uh, when, when someone enters into the witness protection program, they have to completely change everything about them. Their name, date of birth, social security number, everything, right? So your name is essential in, in, uh, in, in your identity, in changing their names, in changing their names, Nebuchadnezzar is attempting to strip away who they are. He's attempting to change uh, whom to whom they belong to. They were given strong, God-glorifying, honoring names, and he is attempting to, to, to brainwash them, to take all of that out and to give them something else. Naming something or shows 
relationship. It shows belonging. I, my last name is Green uh, for uh, because my dad's last name is that and my mom's last name is that. And when I got married, uh, Melody's last name changed to Green to show that we are, it shows relationship. It shows belonging and identity to, to, uh, to something. God creates Adam and names him because he's created in the image and likeness of God. Uh, and, and Adam then goes ahead and names the animals showing dominion over them. So the problem here is not that the problem here is not renaming. The problem here is it's not Nebuchadnezzar's place to rename because they don't belong to him. They belong to God. Uh, speaking of names, God reveals his name. In Exodus 3, 13 to 14, we see that Moses asked God, who am I going to tell the people uh, that you are? Right? When they asked me, who sent me? What, what's his name? What am I going to say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God's the only one who has a name that was not given him because he's always been and always will be. Now, several times in scripture, we see the phrase command, you shall name him or he shall be called. Names are important. Names matter. So let me ask you this question. What is the name that you're responding to? Do you respond to being called the, the brightest, the smartest, the most handsome, the most pretty? Uh, do, are those the names that tend to lift you up and you feel pride in that? Or on the other end, do you respond to names of being called a failure or of being called not good enough or, 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 or being called a loser, right? Or an idiot or, or something along those lines. I think both of those are, are not quite correct. And I, and I want to I help you if that's you today and say, first and foremost, before anything else, your name is created in the image and likeness of God. And because of that fact, you have intrinsic worth, dignity, value, and respect, and no one can take that away from you because God has named you and formed you after himself. And although the image of sin has distorted that image and we don't function and operate the way that we ought to, it doesn't mean that God has completely removed the image from us. This, this is where Jesus enters into the story. Jesus has come to redeem, to restore, to renew the image. He paid the price for our sin, the, the, the price uh, which, which is death, the same sin that distorts us. He asks us to believe in him, to trust him, to totally lean into that act of love from him because he wants to give you a new name. If you're in Christ, you have a new name. You're a new creation. You, 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 your, your, name is, your new name is justified. Your new name is saint. Your, your new name is child of God. Your, your new name is, is part of God's family, salt and light, citizen of heaven, forgiven, secure. You are God's workmanship. It's interesting uh, to look and say Nebuchadnezzar called them. He called them something uh, as if to suggest that they referred to one another by their Hebrew names apart from whatever Nebuchadnezzar wanted to call them. They knew who they were. They knew to whom they belonged to. They knew whose they were. Uh, they knew whom they were living for and, and who was the one who was, who, who was going to faithfully keep them and had kept them. And, they would con and, and he's the one that would continue to keep them. And this is what enabled them to stand firm. They knew who they were, but ultimately they knew who they were in God for they knew God. This is what would help them not to compromise or conform to Nebuchadnezzar's plan for them, but instead 
to, to stand firm. So we're going to look at that right now. God equipped them to resolve. He equipped them to resolve. And there's a resolve that is required for each and every child of God. We read in verse 8, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuch to allow him not to defile himself. So what exactly does it mean to resolve? To resolve is to come to a definite or earnest decision about, determined to do something, to come to a determination, make up one's mind, a resolution or determination made as to follow some course of action, firmness or purpose or intent. And I'm not going to focus on the foods that Daniel was rejecting or what was it that defiled I don't think that's important for what it is that we're trying to uh, discover here. I think the important question to ask is, why? And what what caused him uh, to be so steadfast, so set, so determined to stand firm uh, that he was... he. He was willing to stick to his resolve and, and not defile himself with the king's food and drink. This is the answer, I believe. A deep-seated love for God in his heart. There's a constant unifying bond going on between heart and mind. And oftentimes in these conversations of heart and mind, feeling versus knowledge, we tend to lean to one extreme or the other. Uh, and I want to show how head and heart are not at war, but instead they're best of friends and they love one another dearly and they always want to be with each other. I believe that this was the success and the secret, uh, the secret to Daniel's success and for his friends. And we're going to look at that. So in Deuteronomy chapter six, we see uh, in verse five, it says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. In his book, With All Your Heart, A. Craig Troxell says that one cannot function rationally in isolation from the heart, for it is only when the affections are properly oriented to the ends of human life that people can think rationally about themselves. He goes on to say that when scripture uses the word heart, it refers to the unity of our inner self. The mind, desires, and the will are distinct functions of the heart, but they are not separate or unrelated. They are constantly influenced and related to one another. This is the way the heart was meant to operate, with knowledge, affection, and volition working together. The mind cannot function detached from desire and volition the mind, cannot, uh, the mind cannot function detached from desire and volition. Our reasoning is inseparably bound up with our affections and feelings, and it is informed by the institutions of the heart. So we see this beautiful harmony being worked together here in Deuteronomy 6, when loving the Lord your God with all your heart and the words that are commanded to be on your heart are in sync. Richard Sibbs said, whatever your heart enjoys is what your heart will explore. This is the heartbeat and the concept of Psalm 119. The psalmist loves and delights in the Lord's commands and his precepts and his statutes and his words. But why? Because he loves God. He doesn't want to sin. He wants to know more about God because every time he learns something about God, he says, I want to know more. I want to know more. He wants to be reminded about God and about his wonderful works. This is the vehicle that stirs up his, his love pot and gets him going. It's the fuel for his fire. And the same, I believe, goes for Daniel. As a good little Israelite boy, 
Daniel would have been taught this section of the law known as the Shema, right? So this is the same section that later Jesus is going to quote in Matthew 22, where he's asked the question, which is the great commandment of the law? He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Again, Daniel knew who he was in himself, but more importantly, he knew who God was because he was informed about who God was and he loved God so much that he refused to eat and drink whatever Nebuchadnezzar was offering him because it would defile him. But ultimately, because it would defile God, it would grieve God, it would grieve the Lord. And so the chief of the eunuchs was afraid of Nebuchadnezzar, but Daniel had a right fear of God, of, of a love and respect and a devotion for the Lord. This, this word grounded Spirit-fueled, God-loving resolve is, is, is amplified in chapter 3 when, uh, uh, when Nebuchadnezzar sets up this golden statue and demands that everyone fall down and worship the statue, which is, again, a clear violation of what the Lord requires and commands. It's time for them to make another resolve. So we read here in Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 to 6, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. But this command or decree uh, or this order from, from Nebuchadnezzar comes with a clear warning also. So in verse 6, we see, and whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery surface, uh, furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, or lyre, uh, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Everyone got the memo. Everyone got the memo. Everyone knew Nebuchadnezzar's reputation. Everyone knew it was going to happen if they didn't bow down. They knew he's not the one to mess with. You got to do what he says or there's going to be trouble. If there was ever a time where these teenagers could compromise and conform on their convictions, it would have been now. If there was a time for them to switch teams and, and, and toss out their beliefs, it would have been now. Because think about it. Who wants to be burned alive in a fiery furnace? I certainly don't. So the music starts playing. Everybody hits the floor. Man, woman, boy, girl, every nation, every language, every tribe, everyone drops down and, and starts to worship. Except these three. They resolved in their hearts, and we're going to see this later, they had already resolved in their hearts to honor the Lord. The, and this made Nebuchadnezzar furious. But... Since these guys are his officials, his trusty officials, he, he, he sort of issues them a challenge, right? So to see if, if, if they were thinking straight, he kind of says, hey, I'm going to give you guys a second chance. Are you sure about this? You sure you want to do this? You sure? Is your God really worth it? Your, your convictions and your devotion and your love for your God, uh, you know, is it really worth being alive for in a fiery furnace? Do you really trust your God that much? Again, if there was ever a time for compromise over conviction, it would have been now. 
If, if there was ever a time where cowardice and fear could conquer their courage, it would have been now. You, you, you've, got, you've got one chance to change your mind. They could have easily just said, hey, let's just pretend, right? Let's just pretend we're going to bow. We're not really going to do it in our heart, but we're just going to make him think that we're really doing it. Daniel's not here. It's just the three of us. No one's going to know. Let's just, let's just pretend. They didn't do that, though. There's a challenge that Nebuchadnezzar issues at the end of this, of his plea with them, right? So he tells them, hey, last chance. Uh, you guys can bend and bow and worship or burn. After all, there's no God that's going to be able to save you from this. Now, here's the pivotal moment. You've got two camps right here, two polar opposite dispositions that are working here right now. You've got these Hebrew teenagers, again, somewhere between the ages of 14 and 17 probably, who fear God, they know God, they trust God, they're familiar with His mighty power, they're familiar with His wondrous works, and they're calm, cool, collected, confident. They're humble servants. But then you've got King Nebuchadnezzar, doesn't fear God, doesn't know God, uh, ignorant of who God is, angry, furious, enraged, arrogant, egotistical. Their response is so remarkable and so inspiring that it ended up angering Nebuchadnezzar even more. Think about this. These guys just got conquered by Nebuchadnezzar. They just got conquered by him. And they're about to die. They're in front of a furnace. They're about to be burned. And this is their response. Daniel chapter 3, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. But he will not but he, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, before we read too much into that, let me clarify. They're not dissing or disrespecting Nebuchadnezzar at all, but what they are saying is, hey, we don't have anything else left to say to you. We don't have an answer for you. We've already decided and resolved in our heart that we're not going to bow. And guess what? God's going to save us, but if he don't, if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow. This is the king of Babylon, emperor, conqueror of nations. This is a huge blow to his ego. But what faith and what resolve and what courage and trust in God that they express. God delivered them. God saved them. And this is not a story to tell us that, oh, God always delivers out of harm's way. Not at all. But what it does show us is that God is able and willing to work through pretty ordinary, regular teenagers, right? So they end up being the ones living in a foreign land, in a foreign place. They were courageous, faithfully committed to God right where they were. They were young, yeah, but guess what? They witnessed to fellow Israelites young and old. They're the influencers of their day, and we need influencers like this who will speak up and encourage on behalf of God. We need uh, uh, young teenagers who are ambassadors for Christ. So the question is, how do we invite our young people to be those ambassadors today? God is the one who enabled those Hebrew boys. He's the same God who enables our students, our teenagers here right now, today. So are we going to allow the world to call us outside of our name? We know who we are in Christ. God is able to work through you no matter who you are right now, no matter what your age. And the appeal is from this verse here in Romans 12, 1 and 2. That I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, 
which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect.